Welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, the show for those who care to be aware about the national security and foreign policy issues facing our country. I'm your host, Connor Bolanos, and today we're going to be talking about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And the reason that I think this is worth talking about is if you've been paying attention to the news, on November 15th, that would have been Tuesday of this week at the time of recording, the a stray missile hit the Polish border, killing two Polish citizens. The response was that Poland invoked Article 4 of NATO, and there was a lot of discussion as to whether or not Poland would invoke Article 5, something that many people thought would trigger a world war, and perhaps it could have. But in light of, you know, the discussion around Article 5, and I think around the greater discussion about the validity of NATO and whether it is a valid organization or something that the United States should even participate in in recent years, something that really started under President Donald Trump, I think it is a topic worth discussing, especially within the context of the Ukrainian war. But of course, as is usually the case, we can't really talk about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization without first talking about its origins and its history. The North Atlantic Treaty, the founding document of NATO, was signed on the 4th of April, 1949, by 12 founding members. Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and of course, the United States. Based on the nations, you can roughly probably picture in your head where most of these nations are. These are nations that were to the west of Germany, primarily European nations, who in the aftermath of World War II found themselves you know, as Western democracies aligned with the United States against uh, the USSR and, you know, the communist kind of ideology that had taken over East Germany, much of the Balkans and Eastern Europe as a whole. And the North Atlantic Treaty Organization then was kind of the unifying organization that sought to coalesce to condense Western military, economic and political power into a unified kind of defensive entity. Of course, not some sort of entity that exercises political powers over its nations. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization has no authority to interfere in domestic politics or foreign policy. It is merely a defensive organization, primarily a defensive organization that in its preamble supports the values of the UN Charter, such as self-determination, basic human rights, and some of those things, even if, you know, nowadays that definition of basic human rights is a bit muddled. But the 1949 definition of the UN Charter of Human Rights is what they were committed to upholding. And so, you know, for most of the Cold War, you've probably heard of it. NATO, NATO was kind of that Western bloc, that founding and strongest entity that resisted the USSR. And, you know, NATO has never really actually been called into action, with the exception of 9-11, when NATO did deploy forces to Afghanistan to assist with the United States, and where NATO allies, for example, did help with the invasion of Iraq, even if, you know, necessarily whether or not the organization was involved is a bit of a different story and to what degree it was involved. But, Fundamentally speaking, the history of NATO is in a lot of ways the history of the United States. Most of U.S. foreign policy since World War II has been surrounded by the idea of NATO. It's been driven by NATO. It's used NATO as kind of the primary tool to deter foreign aggression and to kind of really ensure American national security. But of course, a lot of this came into question and why there's controversy is when the Soviet Union fell in the 1990s, 1993, The question was, who was our enemy? What was NATO standing against? Do we want to be defending all the countries within NATO? Do we even share a lot of the same values that, you know, the NATO countries hold? 
do is NATO worth it? Is NATO a drain? Are we defending NATO or is NATO also defending us? And a lot of these were criticisms that you saw emerge under President Trump. Probably the first time that you really saw these criticisms emerge. One of the popular taglines uh, that Donald Trump had talked about was that many NATO nations were not paying the 2% of GDP that is required by the by the treaty itself. And, you know, the argument was, of course, America was making up all these expenses. We've been spending billions of dollars to defend countries such as Germany and France, and they're not even spending enough money to defend themselves. And, of course, with that, you know, it's like, should we still be in NATO? Is this acceptable? Is this something we should be doing? And that's really been a lot of the controversy. Of course, more recently, the controversy has, you know, been one of values to an extent. Uh, you probably have heard that in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Finland and Sweden both wanted to join NATO. These are historically neutral nations that throughout the Cold War did not join either the Warsaw Pact or NATO. They preferred to remain neutral, even if they were Western aligned. But with the invasion of Ukraine, they've sought to join NATO. And most people thought that was a great idea. Obviously, there's those who disagree. But many thought that there really wouldn't be much opposition from NATO. NATO has been expanding since its foundation. It accompanies most of the Baltic states, a lot of Eastern Europe, and primarily those European nations that used to be in the Warsaw Pact. With the notable exception, though, of Ukraine, although that is certainly another topic in of itself. But returning to the main point, you know, everyone thought that Finland and Sweden would be allowed in without much issue. But there was someone who had issue, Turkey. Turkey is an important strategic NATO ally. It is a nation that controls the Bosphorus Straits, the only way in or out of the Black Sea. It was in Turkey that the U.S. stationed missiles during, that caused the Cuban Missile Crisis, and its proximity to Russia has made Turkey, strategically speaking, a key NATO member. Of course, though, then there's differences. Why did Turkey oppose admitting Sweden and Finland into NATO? Some think it's because Turkey gets actually along pretty well with Russia. For example, the there's a Turkstream pipeline. It's an oil and natural gas pipeline that goes from Russia to Turkey, and it provides Turkey with fuel and energy. And so Turkey has, you know, to an extent, a vested interest in that. Turkey is also not necessarily been the most ideologically aligned um, with the United States, and other European governments, it doesn't have the same cultural heritages to a, to a decent extent. It doesn't necessarily have the same social views on a number of issues either without getting too into the weeds of it. And the U.S. and Turkey have occasionally come to blows on issues such as the Kurds, an ethnic group in the Middle East that does not have its own nation but really wants to make it. The Kurds are a significant force in the Syrian civil war, eastern Turkey, and northern Iraq. And in the past, the U.S. has sponsored the Kurds as a kind of counterbalance to the Assad regime, as a counterbalance to the Saddam regime, and kind of has served as a key U.S. ally against ISIS when the U.S. was fighting it under Presidents Trump and Obama. And of course, this has been a little bit of a point of tension. And in recent years, we've seen, for example, uh, Turkey wanted to purchase Russian S-300s, S-300s being a Russian anti-missile, anti-air defense system. And in response to it, the United States basically sanctioned Turkey, saying, if you want to go buy Russian anti-air and anti-missile tech, you can get U.S. F-35s something that they've been giving out to other members. And so, you know, you've seen since the fall of the Soviet Union, there's no longer this single domineering 
large, powerful military entity that's serving as a unifying force for all the members of NATO. And that's not to say there aren't threats to NATO, right? Arguably, Russia's still a threat to NATO. Arguably, China is a threat to NATO. But there's no longer this massive communist behemoth, right, breathing down your neck on the border. That, that's just not what the situation is anymore. And so I think you're really seeing a lot more of these dividing tensions. And now returning to the earlier point about Donald Trump and the comments he made about NATO spending. For those of you just tuning in, welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about the history of NATO, its foundations, its origin, its role in the Cold War, and we got a little bit into some of the controversies today around the NATO budget, the differences within the NATO allies, and to an extent whether or not NATO is something we want to be in. I think, though, we should visit the issue of the budget. I think it's an issue that has a little more there's more hard numbers on it. And I think that this is one of the issues that when you talk about NATO and whether or not NATO is worth it and valid, it's definitely one of the things that comes out most. Here's a clip from President Trump back in 2018, 2019, when he was at a NATO summit talking about the matter of nation contribution to NATO. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. But 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not fair to the people and taxpayers of the United States. As you just heard, Donald Trump insisted that a majority of the NATO members do not pay the 2% of GDP for their defense as required. And he's right when he says this. He, he's not wrong. A CNN article, CNN, you know, one of the news sites that Donald Trump lambasted for, you know, misrepresenting him and being against him, agreed with him on this, saying that only eight of the 29 members currently met, this is article is from 2019, that they met this 2% standard. All members, the article notes, pledged to reach the 2% level by 2024, but not all of them actually had plans to do so at the time that they were writing this. So before we get into the matter of defense spending today in the NATO countries and what that looks like, let's talk about whether or not this is something that's okay and something that's acceptable. In my mind, I think it is acceptable. I think it's all right. I think the United States is a very privileged and blessed nation to have as strong as an economy as it has, right? And I think as a consequence of that, the U.S. can afford the, to an extent spend more than some of these other nations on something as key and critical as defense. And I think the other thing that we need to note when we talk about this is that the United States, for better or for worse, has assumed, I believe, the role as kind of everyone— this is used in a derogatory way at times, but the world police, right? That the United States is the one in charge of policing the world. I think to an extent it's true, and I think to an extent that's a good thing. And so if it means that we have to pay more than 2% GDP, then I don't think that's the worst thing. And the other thing to consider is would we be paying 2% GDP on our defense spending if 
other nations up to theirs? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. I think the United States would always be paying as much money as it currently is on its defense because the U.S. has a vast variety of interests around the world and it has requirements that, as we talked about in the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength last year, the U.S. military needs to be able to fight two simultaneous theater wars. And it's not as if U.S. defense spending would decline. As we talked about last time, the U.S. military is inadequate to meet these needs, and so maybe an increase in defense spending is ultimately needed. But, of course, you know, is should U.S. NATO allies, though, be paying 2%? Even though I don't think the United States should be leaving NATO because they aren't, I obviously do think that these nations should be paying the 2% that they are. And the good news is that a lot of these nations in recent months have actually moved to do so. France has been upping its defense budget. Germany has been upping its defense budget. A majority of the Eastern Europeans are upping their defense budget. The United Kingdom has increased their defense budget. And the reason for all of this has mainly been Russia and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think in a lot of ways, this is a good sign. I think, one, it demonstrates that NATO, that NATO still has a common enemy. That, you know, in the light of the unwarranted Russian invasion of Ukraine, NATO still believes that together we can deter armed forces and armed threats. And we've definitely seen NATO forces work in conjunction, NATO nations working in conjunction in order to supply the Ukrainians, provide training and technical aid in order to repel the Russians. And it also shows NATO unity, though, right? It shows that NATO has a perceived idea that there is a common enemy. If there wasn't the idea of a common common enemy, then there's no reason that these nations would be upping their defense budgets. They'd be thinking, hey, this isn't actually a threat. This isn't an issue. We don't need to touch the defense budget at all. But the fact that the nations have been increasing their defense budget is ultimately a sign that a lot of these nations still have, and the United States, have a common idea of who are the threats to us in the world are and what the threats to the world order and the national security are. And it also demonstrates that I think they're not relying on the U.S. to protect them. If you look at what the U.S. military has been up to since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was some redeployment to Europe of American forces, but there wasn't an overwhelming amount. There weren't tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of American troops swarming into Europe and NATO bases. No, most of the European nations decided, hey, we're not feeling secure. We think we need to strengthen our own defenses, and so they've allocated the money to do so. And I think this ultimately serves to still prove the point that, sure, maybe a few years ago, NATO, some NATO members were feeling a little bit lax, feeling a little bit comfy about their situations, and so didn't use the full 2% of GDP. Was it unfair to an extent to America, and was it in some way violating the spirit of the treaty? Absolutely agree. Does it mean that the U.S., though, should abandon NATO, ab abandon its defense network, abandon kind of one of the main diplomatic instruments for ensuring American national security? No. And I think ultimately, in light of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, NATO has ultimately proven that it shares and can view a common enemy. If NATO was unable to come to terms on who the common enemy is, then I think at that point the alliance would be fragmented enough that one could argue that we should leave NATO because we no longer share the same enemy. But I think the unified NATO response to Russia demonstrates that we still all do perceive a common enemy and a common threat to co our collective national and global security. And I think that really proves still the strength and validity of NATO from that kind of monetary budget standpoint.
For those of you just tuning in, welcome to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about the NATO defense spending requirements, the 2% of GDP that every NATO nation is required to spend on their defense. And we talked about how some nations are violating this, but how ultimately this doesn't mean the United States should leave NATO. And we also talked about how in light of Russian aggression, NATO has proven that it perceives a common threat to the collective security of the Western democracies and the Western nations, and how that's a good thing that justifies NATO and shows why we should still be in it. But with that said, let's talk about the future of NATO. What does the future hold for this organization and this alliance? And I think there's two interesting paths to really look at when we talk about what this means. And the first is to talk about the European army, the EU army. The EU army, of course, doesn't exist. You probably have never really heard of the term before, but it's something that's come up in frequent discussion. Uh, When the EU was first found when it stopped becoming the European Coal and Steel Commission, Steel and Coal Commission, back in the aftermath of World War II in the 1940s, 1950s. The de Gaulle, for example, and Karl Audenauer of Germany, the Chancellor of West Germany and de Gaulle, President of France, discussed about the notion of creating a common, unified European army, an army that would collect individuals from all of the European nations and put it into kind of a more unified continental body. Of course, this never came to fruition, the main reasons being the differences in languages and cultures and nations still wanting to maintain their own sovereignty, something that makes complete sense. And we've also seen before the consequences of what happens when you put multi-ethnic soldiers into an army. For example, the Austro-Hungarian army back in World War I, Austro-Hungary was a nation made up of roughly eight different ethnicities, many of which didn't speak the same language, but all were serving in the army. What you had end up having to do was to teach the those who couldn't speak German a few German command words, which meant you couldn't really perform complex maneuvers, right? You'd be shouting things like, fire, march, but nothing beyond that because no one could understand or remember anything beyond that because they didn't know the languages. So, of course, there's just logistical challenges, right? If you have a French and a German who don't understand each other's languages trying to coordinate a counteroffensive against an enemy, you're not really going to get anywhere. And so that was one of the main problems, alongside, of course, the issue of sovereignty. And whether or not the EU army should exist, right, is a completely different question of itself. Those in favor of it believe that it'll draw Europe closer together, that pooling the collective resources of all the NATO countries and all of its technology is the best way to create an effective fighting force to defend what has increasingly become a set of shared values and ideals in Europe. Of course, those who disagree believe that, you know, their nations should maintain their sovereignty and that the best way to maintain their sovereignty is with an armed force, something that I am very sympathetic to. But, you know, what what does the future of NATO hold if an EU army theoretically would be formed? Keep in mind, a majority of NATO countries are also in the European Union. Would we see a situation if the EU army was formed where the United States would have to do less to defend Europe because there'd now be a much stronger unified military force? Or what would that dynamic look like? 
I think it would actually be that. I think that the, from that standpoint, the EU army is a good thing. I think if the EU army formed, the U.S. would have to commit a lot less to the European front. I think there would be a much stronger effective fighting force there. And I think it would really make the NATO alliance a lot stronger. Of course, this isn't to say that an EU army should form. As I've kind of talked about, there are a number of issues that come with it, both logistically, militarily. And that's not to even mention the logistics of ammunition. Keep in mind, most European countries don't use the same equipment. They don't use the same rifles, tanks, armored fighting vehicles, artillery. They don't even use the same bullets. NATO does have standardized bullets, but not every rifle in the NATO military necessarily shoots them, which, you know, makes logistics very difficult. Something that we're really seeing happen in Ukraine right now. But regardless, I think a EU army would be very interesting because it would make a very strong and unified European kind of military power. And I think it would allow the United States, you know, to either spend less on its military spending because it wouldn't have to commit as many forces to Europe or even to focus more of its attention to regions where Europe isn't as powerful, such as Asia. And that brings us to the final aspect of the future of NATO. Should NATO expand to Asia? This is something that a lot of people have talked about in the past. Should nations like South Korea, Japan, maybe even India at some point, be brought into the NATO framework? These are nations, uh, especially in the case of South Korea and Japan, that the United States is friendly with. These are democracies in Asia. We built the Japanese constitution, a lot of their foundations, especially in economics and politics, it comes from the Americans after during the Japanese reconstruction in World War II. And so there's a lot of thought, hey, with the rise of China, the rise of this Chinese power, shouldn't we broaden NATO? Is that a way to strengthen, uh, strengthen NATO uh, and strengthen the U.S. presence in Asia? Of course, though, there's arguments about that. Should and does Japan want to go and defend Europe if Europe were to be attacked? Does Europe want to go all the way to Asia to defend uh, Japan if it's attacked? The United States may have interests in both Europe and Asia, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Europe and Asia have interests in each other simply due to their geographical positioning. So, of course, there's on the other hand another argument that the U.S. should make a security agreement with South Korea and Japan, but ultimately not invite them into NATO. And I think it's that idea that's actually probably the best one. As I said, I do not think that Japan or South Korea would be willing to send large amount of forces to Europe were an attack to happen there. At the same time, I don't think many Europeans would be enthusiastic about going all the way over to Asia in order to fight a war there. The United States is in a unique position where it borders both the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and geographically speaking, then, it's inclined to have an interest in both regions. That's just simply not the case in Europe and Japan, which are on, for all intents and purposes, really other sides of the world. So if the United States really wants to broaden its security agreements and to kind of make more stable relationships in the Asiatic region, I don't think the future is in inviting Japan and South Korea to NATO, but rather making our own collective security agreements with those two states to deter the rise of China. And that's all the time we have for this week on Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thank you for tuning in and join us next time as we discuss another national security and foreign policy issue facing our country.